This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The designer-gamer divide. Writing what you know. If Lovecraft lived. And more Rob Ford. The rattle of D8s and the lengthy prologue in which we discuss this week's episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to this, we've once more wandered into a particularly chatty version of the Gaming Hut. And this week I thought that I would uh, bring up a few questions that arise from the questions that we get for Ask Ken and Robin without specifically answering any questions. And that sort of brings us to a broader look at the differences between the way that rank-and-file gamers look at the tabletop gaming hobby and the way that professionals like Ken and myself do. For example, one genre of question that I never queue up for the show is the question that is somehow trying to get at the question of, what is the best game? Uh, Now, it might be, what is the best game overall? It might be, what is the game that you would play if you didn't have to play games... Uh, professionally, uh, the question you know, there's all sorts of ways to phrase it, but ultimately it's trying to lead toward getting us to rank an ultimate choice. And Ken, you have a, a favorite game, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, no, my ultimate choice is Call of Cthulhu, um, and I have said that in every every media format except skywriting, and when they invent new ones, I will say it in that format, because I strongly suspect it will be true then, too. Right, so there's not much point trying to get Ken to uh, re-answer that question, because he, he has answered it. And for me, I don't think there is one best game, just as there isn't one best genre of theater or type of music that I want to live in a world with all sorts of different choices, and that in a way a game is a tool for storytelling and that what your uh, needs are are going to vary from one session to another or one campaign to another. And I don't want there to be a best game because as someone who designs games, I don't want to feel that everything has already been done and that I'm just sort of uh, scribbling in the margins. I want to think that there are still directions to head in and that there are lots of really great games, and I want to believe that other people's games are great without creating that sort of ranking system that I might, for example, I can tell you what my top 10 films are because I am not a filmmaker. <laughs> and, uh, well, although, you know, most well, filmmakers, of filmmakers can also tell you their top 10 films. Yeah, because uh, I think in part because filmmaking exists in a world where that has existed for 100 years <laughs> and that you haven't. And, and films are, you know, different from games in that they're not utilitarian in the same way. And indeed, filmmakers may be able to tell you what their favorite lens is or their favorite shot composition, but they're not going to restrict themselves to any one of those things. And Ken, I think that you're more of, a, exists in a dual role as both a critic and a designer. And I try not to be a critic of other people's games, even though there are some things that appeal to me more than others. Uh, in part out of a sense of collegiality and in part because I want to believe that everybody's uh, games are are great. And, you know, sometimes there are individual features of particular games that seem to work 
less well than others. But even if there is something that I don't much care for, um, I'm not going to stake out a public position on that. I'm going to just sort of uh, politely demur and not answer the question because, uh, first of all, I may well run into the designer of that game who I want to be on on friendly terms with. And secondly, that just isn't a question that uh, possesses me in in large part because the way that I'm choosing what game to play is unrelated to the way that the vast majority of gamers choose the game they want to play. It makes perfect sense from a gamer's point of view to try and figure out what the best game is. That might be shorthand for what is the best game for me, but nonetheless that makes perfect sense. I'm not saying that game players should not want to find their favorite game, just that asking a uh, professional who bounces from game system to game system and company to company, you're not going to get as good an answer from me as you might from a less attached observer of the scene. Well, I think that um, your earlier parallel with filmmaking is fairly strong, and certainly in my experience, right? I mean, the guys who are making films after Citizen Kane or after The Searchers, depending on which one of those you consider to be the greatest film of all time, I'm sure that, you know, Quentin Tarantino or um, uh, Werner Herzog don't get up in the morning and say, well, just got a color in the margins today because uh, Orson Welles or John Ford have already done all the hard work. I mean, they're out there, you know, saying, what else can I do? What What thing can I do that will be worthy of consideration in the same breath as the searchers or in the same breath as Citizen Kane. And that's what, you know, impels them forward. You know, when, uh, you know, I don't think Steven Spielberg is under any delusions that he's the second coming of, of lean, but he wants to make uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And so he wants to sort of reach out and, and, and capture that, uh, that, that artistic expression in whatever context and in whatever terminology and for whatever audience he's, he's aiming at uh, in, in a given moment. And I think that similarly, even, you know, uh, gamers, they may have a favorite game. They have a game that they consider best and not even designers, just normal, uh, you know, people who are, are free from this, uh, this curse of design that you and I are subject to. They may say, I think Call of Cthulhu is the best game, but they're not necessarily always in the mood for Call of Cthulhu any more than they're always in the mood uh, to watch uh, the original series of Star Trek, or they're always in the mood to listen to Mozart, or they're always in the mood to eat uh, sashimi. You know, there, there's going to be a bunch of different things that appeal to any given aesthetic combination of circumstances, and so they may be playing Call of Cthulhu as their default or as their mainstay, but then they play D&D with other friends, or Vampire with other friends, or Unknown Armies, or uh, Dogs in the Vineyard, or whatever, because an individual circumstance changes. Now, obviously... Gaming involves time commitments and uh, rules mastery commitments that other artistic pursuits don't. So you can wind up, you know, sort of shorthanding it to let's just play Call of Cthulhu because we all know how good it is. And, you know, again, that's not an indefensible decision. But I think that looking at games, you know, in in sort of a ranked position is not necessarily outside the, the, the realm of a designer. Because even as a designer, even if you're not saying Pendragon is the best game ever... You are certainly saying, Pendragon is a hell of a good game. If I'm doing a game that is anything like Pendragon, I should be looking at Pendragon as either a model or a target. And those are, I I think without that sort of critical compass, you can wind up uh, just sort of noodling around in a corner and hoping uh, that the next Vincent Baker game is open source so that you can go and do your own, you know, asterisk world or your own asterisk ghosts or your own asterisk of the vineyard 
uh, when he's done all the heavy lifting. And I think if you get a group of game designers hanging around after hours at a convention and they're not talking about craft beers or uh, arguing about atheism <laughs> and they start talking about games that are not games of their design and zeroing in on you know what is the best what they're probably going to be talking about is what's the best interesting little feature of this game what's the interesting feature of this other game what does this game do really well mm. and the subtext of that is in part, you know, what are the developments that are really important? And secondly, what can I steal? And what represents the best state of the art? Yeah, I, I've always said that, uh, you know, you're a game designer if when you're reading or playing a game, you're thinking about how to steal the mechanics. Right. So the, the argument would not be, you know, which version of, you know, D&D is best, but it would be, well, what do these things do differently? And how well does it succeed at doing it. So it sort of goes, you know, back to that three questions, kind of skips the was it worth doing to, you know, sort of drill down to another level of detail. So you're not likely to have, you know, see a big addition war argument occur between professional game designers. No, you're not going to see throwdowns versus old and new World of Darkness or uh, between um, various iterations of Traveler or whatever. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of, well, on one hand this and on the other hand this, and that was interesting. And, and do you remember you know, this awesome mechanic from and like yeah, that? Yeah, and maybe it would have worked a little better if they did this. And that sort of gets to another sort of difference in perspective between uh, game designers and the uh, gamer public in general is that I think I've sometimes run into people who think that because gamers like to divide themselves into aesthetic camps and argue with each other, that professionals do as well, and that therefore the people who designed 3rd edition and the people who designed 4th edition must despise one another bitterly and engage <laughs> in a constant combat over that. And of course, the lead designer on, in particular, the lead designer in 3 and the lead designer in 4 are best friends. And have and, kind of uh, collaborated on yet another game. Yes. And you certainly don't see that level of uh, feuding that some gamers, to my great surprise, imagine exists. And certainly any group of people, you're going to have you know some folks who don't get along with other people, but that's Never to do with game design. <laughs> yeah, there's That's... there's always plenty of other reasons to be mad at someone than um, uh, some dice mechanic they did or didn't use. Right, and in general, although um, that an another reason why you don't see a lot of feuding between uh, game designers is first of all we're all interested in what other people are doing in order to uh, see what state of the art things we can pilfer for the next generation of game design, but also the fact that it is a small cottage industry with not a lot of money in it and therefore the sort of personal rivalries that you would get in a business where there is money uh, like the comics industry for example uh, don't really happen and also there's a sense of collegiality because it, there's a feeling that we're all kind of working together building the art form still and it's not a zero-sum game the way it is you know if if ken uh, you are busy writing the hulk uh, that means that Gareth can't write the Hulk until he does something to dispose of you. Mm -hmm. And so there is definitely uh, a greater sense of rivalry and there only being so many slots at the table in the comics world during my brief uh, contact with it. But that's one of the things that's, I think, really glorious about tabletop role-playing. And I've heard it from you know other people as well, like artists who have uh, both kind of done the networking thing and the computer 
gaming side of things and then come to Gen Con, there's really a huge night and day difference in terms of the uh, sense of togetherness. And that's very, very different from what you sometimes hear imagined uh, when uh, you hear gamers sort of imagining what's going on between professionals. I've also had, on occasion, people come up to me after referencing a professional who I hold in great esteem in the course of a panel and had some come up to you and say, well, uh, this person's career is in decline because of this book. Um, <laughs> and there's so many uh, wrong assumptions uh, in, in that. Perhaps you could count them out. Yes. As someone says, um, uh, more errors than words in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, obviously, it's uh, uh, if you want to uh, converse with a, a gaming professional, the way to do it is not by opening with a slam against another gaming professional, because chances are uh, you've hung out with them and kind of like them and are not going to appreciate having your friend slammed. And also the notion that any one uh, book not being well-received, A, uh, probably wasn't ill-received the way that it probably just means that uh, the gamer who is talking thinks that you know that they didn't like it yeah, the, the number they... of people i've run into who believe that the call of, uh, the, the d20 call of cthulhu book didn't do well it's staggering i mean that book sold faster i think than any d20 book that year it sold out a watsy size print run and the reason it wasn't reprinted is has a lot more to do with fecklessness and intercompany slap fights than it does with any perceived failure of the market. Which is, you know, when you when you have a mystery involving wizards, that's usually the first theory to go <laughs> yeah, to. Right. And so the idea that careers rise and fall on individual books or projects is uh, another weird misconception, or weird to me anyway. And I think that's fr taken from looking at the real entertainment industry and the way it works, mm -hmm. and then trying to apply it to tabletop gaming, assuming, for example, that there's the amount of money in it that there is in uh, movies or books or whatever. But even in, you know, mainstream entertainment, uh, rarely is the, can you mention in an ac actual example of a project that failed so badly that the uh, reputation of the creator was uh, irrevocably tarnished. More's, more's the pity. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are plenty of creators whose reputation I would like to have seen irrevocably tarnished by some, usually an artistic failure, admittedly, but still, it'd be nice if we could tarnish some reputations. I, I, I'd make a list. But on the other hand, you know, like you say, um, I, I think part of it is that the, because the doors are so wide open, especially now, but even in the old days, they were open, uh, to just if you feel like you, you've been, your, your reputation is tarnished, the last project didn't work out for whatever reason, someone else has got that coveted vampire line developer gig, you go out and you go next door and you make another game, and you, and now you can kickstart that other game and know immediately whether or not you've got a, sort of a, a market leg to stand on, and you have the ability to just come roaring back into the space in a way that, you know, any designer now could, Sandy Peterson being obviously the classic example, although he begins by being Sandy Peterson. But there's plenty of, of examples of people who've, who've left the, uh, the, the hobby for one reason or another, you know, usually financial reasons, and then come back into it and released something or produced something, and it's as though they never left. They have been welcomed with uh, glad cries and open arms. And what people remember are not the projects that you do that did not get a great reception or not played today, but the ones that they're currently playing. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you can play uh, Call of Cthulhu 
tonight and thank Sandy Peterson for it and be grateful to his design. Or you can, uh, you know, play GURPS and be happy that Steve Jackson uh, made that. And it, these achievements may have occurred many years ago, but they are still living for you and living for their fans at the gaming table. And, and, so, they're, and they're still fresh and immediate in a way even that movies aren't because yeah. you're co-creating your entertainment with that designer. You're not you know, passively consuming an entertainment that a designer came up with in 1983 or 1981. Right. And you wind up getting a lot of credit for the creativity and enthusiasm and focus of the people at the gaming table who are uh, making those games happen. So in, in fact, in a way, there's sort of often kind of greater loves uh, for your uh, older thing. And if you have a, a previous thing that did well, that's not going to go away on you just because uh, the thing that you tried as an experiment didn't uh, go so well. And like any uh, creative life, you just sort of have to brush yourself off and, and get on going. And if you're a, a busy game designer, chances are the thing that came out that didn't do so well, that's something that you worked on a year ago and you've already had another year of stuff in the pipeline to come out. And by the time that uh, uh, that comes out, you have another year of stuff in the pipeline to, to come out. So you've got to not only you know get up and dust yourself off, but you're kind of a, a moving target. And so that sort of careers rising and falling thing, I guess, is a subset of the idea that uh, there, that our industry is much larger than it is. I remember in the, the glory days of FASA in Chicago being told that, you know, and they were a large mid-tier company mm -hmm. at the time, being told that they would get calls. I mean, I would like to speak to someone in the battle tech department. It's like, Oh, you mean Mike? Yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes there's an image of, uh, you know, mid-tier gaming companies being like the office in uh, Billy Wilder's The Apartment where desks stretch on forever and there are people desk after desk uh, working on uh, uh, weapon reach rules and then next <laughs> to them is a support person. And, and uh, you know, and it's, uh, it's not that at all. It's a lot of shoestring companies mostly now being done with sort of distributed labor relying on a, a lot of freelancers. And uh, I guess that can cause sort of expectations for uh, sort of service and attentiveness that, that aren't there because, of course, we're, uh, except, of course, for, you know, a very few uh, companies like Wizards, which is still has a large staff and is a department of Hasbro, which is definitely a large company. You know, it, we're very much talking about sort of cottage industries. And so uh, if you want to picture the typical uh, gaming company, imagine a kind of a small office with haphazardly placed random convention swag from six years ago piled on some uh, primitive metal shelving and a couple of workstations and uh, and that's your big game company so ken have you noticed sort of um assumptions from the uh beloved horde of gamerdom that you would like to dispel I, I think that the only thing that i that i sort of get on a regular basis that i would like to dispel as opposed to would like to encourage uh is that there is some degree of 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 i, I guess of, of necessary connection between and I guess this is sort of the opposite of, of the concern that you get is is the is the is the sense that that we are doing this and thinking this and being part of this uh, movement twenty four hours a day and seven days a week that because uh, some guy on the internet is you know always on the the, the fan boards for um, you know I don't know a Star Wars Saga Edition or something and. He's lives, breathes, sleeps, and eats Star Wars Saga Edition. He's a super fan about it. 
the notion that the the, the, the sort of superfans, and I don't want to pick on Star Wars because every game line with a message board has at least one of them, and a lot of times, you know, I, I, I welcome their super fandom because it means that I um, have someone whose uh, thread I can look at for any question, but their notion is that because they think that, you know, there is nothing more important than GURPS or there is nothing more important than um, uh, Numenera, that that means that Everyone at the company thinks that. And, you know, obviously Steve Jackson Games hasn't uh, been, you know, fully concerned with GURPS for, you know, the better part of uh, two decades by now. And while GURPS is still very healthy, especially in the, you know, electronic publishing space, it is not the alpha concern of the company in the way that it is the alpha concern of a GURPS player. And likewise, um, you know, Simon, after a a busy uh, day of Satsuma eating and cat annoying at Pelgrane, goes home and gets on with the rest of his life. He isn't constantly sort of thinking about a uh, gumshoe system. He, has, he isn't uh, living it and breathing it. He, and even though he's, I think, uh, running it again in his uh, home game, that's like just another thing that he's doing. It's not a, a level of sort of A-level obsession. And even someone like uh, you or me, who are basically full-time game designers and might be forgiven for thinking about game design full-time, don't, I think, have that same you know, blood connection to the hobby that a super fan on the internet does, or that a super a super gamer who, you know, I mean, I, I am morally certain that there are people who have played more of anything that I've written than I've ever, I mean, they've, they've spent more cycles thinking about it, playing it, you know, touching it, moving it up and down than I have of anything that I've written. And that's probably true of any working game designer, uh, you know, out there that, the, with the possible exception of Luke Crane, who is uh, a fourth dimensional entity. But the but the notion that we are as obsessed as our most obsessed fans, I think, is one that is surprisingly current. And that even relatively well-adjusted people will say, but obviously you saw this, you know, this one fan treatment of, you know, GURPS Horror or GURPS Cabal eons ago that I mentioned on some message board because you're just as big a fan of GURPS Cabal as I am. And while indeed I am a big fan of GURPS Cabal, I'm not, you know, it's not consuming my life. Like you say, that was years ago right. and in another country. And it's consuming your, your work life, mm-hmm. not your off hours, because uh, it's actually not uh, healthy or useful to spend all of your time thinking about your work, and that some of the best thoughts do sort of come to you when you're in a down cycle. But if you're, you know, working uh, nine to five, uh, or, you know, in whatever configuration, because <laughs> you don't literally work nine Which to five. Which are time zones nine and five are. Right. Um, but, you know, if you're working a 40 hour a week or whatever, 50 hour or whatever it is on your creative endeavor that you, that is your job slash vocation, you also need to spend some time not thinking about it in order that your thoughts, when you actually sit down at the uh, desktop to work, are better thoughts. And, uh, you know, I certainly do spend a lot of time in my off hours thinking about uh, things. And sometimes it's stuff that I wish I wasn't thinking about like shipping and, uh, and, and sometimes it is, you know, sort of the, the higher level stuff, but it's definitely something that I very much try to confine essentially to office hours in order to be uh, present for my lovely wife and in order to live a life and have other influences come in that can, uh, that I can bring to the table. It will be surprising to super fans who may be obsessed with, uh, whatever game it is, but don't know this other influence that I want to bring in and, and do something differently with. And so it's very important just as, 
you know, super fans all have jobs and uh, then they have gaming as a hobby and uh, we have uh, gaming as our job and uh, other things as our hobby. And I think um, just like you'd be nervous if a filmmaker had done nothing but watch films and had never read a novel or gone to an art gallery or seen a dance recital or had any other artistic connection, I think that a game designer who's obsessed with nothing but games is in a, I think they're in a, in a, they're, they're at the very least in danger of producing a more hieratic, more occulted, more, um, uh, insular design than a game designer who watches movies or a game designer who, who's interested in architecture or cooking or, uh, dance or, you know, the, the legitimate stage or whatever. Because I think I hear an ineluctable segue to our next segment. So let Ooh. us play some theme music and uh, and be drawn as if riding intellectual segues into the next segment. The segues have rounded the corner where their hum is drowned out by the Thuttering clicking of selectric keyboards for some reason, and the smell of fine pipe tobacco and opened bourbon bottles, because we must be in the land of how to write good. And we were just talking about things that should be influencing our writing, and that leads us, I think, to the question of what should be influencing your writing. Uh, the classic uh, formulation, of course, is write what you know, but as Thousands and thousands of really terrible novels and short stories about writers not getting work or laid have proven that's <laughs> terrible advice. Robin, what should we be writing when we write what we know? So I think that, as you suggest, that the maxim, write what you know, has been sort of broadened and, and misunderstood and misused over the years. But within it is something that I think is really key to vital fictional creation, whether that would be on the page in, in fiction or even in gaming. And so let's, first of all, dispense with uh, the answers to write what you know that are not, I think, the, the great answers. And so I think the one that most listeners to this will agree is that when it is used basically as a cudgel on the behalf of creative writing instructors to encourage people who are interested in writing genre fiction to instead write naturalistic bourgeois realism, that it is a problematic piece of advice, to say the least, mm -hmm. so that, you know, there is a core of people who believe that there is that one genre of writing is not a genre, and that basically the only legitimate writing is writing about people's real lives and the lives that you literally no, and I think, uh, you know, that's, although many people hold that, I think that it's essentially enough of a straw man that we don't have to spend a lot of time knocking it down, that in any genre there is a vital, important, engaging, or sometimes just diverting work, and some of it uses that literal principle of only engage in slight recreations of your naturalistic life and work. Uh, and that works, and uh, most of it doesn't and isn't interesting, just as most genre writing is not particularly interesting or enthralling, and only a few people's are. So how do you get past the question of, of write what you know? I think really what write what you know means when you hear it as a beginning writer is they're trying to come up with a more polite way of saying, don't give me 
regurgitated, ill-thought-out, amateurish mush that is obviously just a Now, this replaying. is only true in writing. In all other art forms, yes. that's totally acceptable, especially Hollywood. Right. Basically, it's a response to beginning writing that is just sort of a reconfiguration of what the writer likes about other people's art. Yeah. And uh, even in Hollywood, where uh, going off the formulaic map is a drawback, you are still, you know, they're still looking for somebody who has a unique personal take on whatever the, you know, the reboot of the Lone Ranger or whatever it is that they're trying to do. They're still looking for someone who can bring personal fire to whatever the subject matter is. So that part of it is to, you, I would say that you don't have to write something that you literally know, but that A, you have to make up enough stuff that you know it really well and that it seems credible and that you have to be able to bring in things that you know about life as it is lived into whatever it is, no matter how fanciful it is, or otherwise it will just seem dull and dead on the page. That you want to shock people with little bits of life, and particularly emotional life, and you need to get what it is that you care about from your own life, uh, your own feelings, and the feelings of the people who are around you in your life, somehow into the stories that you're telling, because that is really what you remember when you remember great works of fiction, is their emotional power and the people in them. And you may not know any hobbits or aliens, but you know people. And if you take what you know about people and transpose it into whatever fanciful genre you're working on, and if you know what you care about in your life and what excites you passionately and why this story relates to what excites you passionately. If somehow it is about you, no matter how many degrees turned on its head it is, that's what people are looking for when they're looking for really exciting pieces of writing that they can then latch on to emotionally. Yeah, and I think that there there's an interesting sort of halfway step there when you talked about regurgitating things that you liked about other writers as your first sort of attempt at writing. And I think that that happens with virtually everybody, that people, you know, get into the business because they want to write like Raymond Carver, or they want to write like H.P. Lovecraft, or they want to write like Raymond Chandler, or they want to write like, you know, whoever, and because that's the guy who grabbed them, or woman, who grabbed them and said, this is what writing is. This is about our connection, me and you, author and reader. And as a reader, if you've been grabbed like that, you think, I want to make that connection just like that. And your immediate sort of reflex is to go back up the path and say, well, if John Steinbeck made me think that, I should be like John Steinbeck to make someone else think that. And very seldom is that early pastiche any good, but I think it's almost ineradicable because I think it's just the, the first natural response. And, you know, certainly if I was uh, told tomorrow to start writing a superhero script, it would probably sound a lot like, uh, you know, Frank Miller, or maybe even, it, it might even sound like Carrie Bates or someone who I was, who I was reading very early, and only after some time would I develop a, a superhero script that sort of sounded more like me, although the other possibility is that since I've written, you know, millions of words that do sound like me, there would be a, a, hopefully a much shorter period of clumsy apprenticeship, but when you talk about, you know, making an emotional connection or looking for an emotional moment, I want to emphasize that that is not necessarily a character moment, right? That the emotion that you are concerned with, for example, in Lovecraft, 
the emotions that he's concerned with are fear and, to a lesser extent, you know, nausea and uh, wonderment. Uh, it's sort of in equal uh, levels. And that the writing conveys that emotion, even if you never connect with his characters on a human level, with one or two exceptions. But you you don't look at Francis Thurston and think, oh, I really sort of get where Francis Thurston is coming from. You are feeling the same emotion that Francis Thurston is feeling, even as Francis Thurston remains a uh, convenient shorthand box to deliver to you Call of Cthulhu. Right, and in Lovecraft's case, the characters, there's not a huge amount of differentiation between them, but his worldview, his emotions, his own fear, his uh, personal weaknesses even, are in all of those characters. And his description of a tree or a wall is full of that feeling. Now, he, you know, although a recluse in a lot of ways, did ramble around, as we talked about last week, and go to places and experience them and have, you know, sort of epiphanies and then found ways to put that in his work. And many of his stories are based on dreams that he had. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't get a, you know, a purer inner experience than uh, dreams when basically your brain is deprived of input and creating a narrative in order to, to fill its hunger for input. And so for him, for Lovecraft, all of those stories are quite vital to his own inner drama, even if the uh, characters are not engaged in traditional drama with one another. Mm-hmm. But it's very different than if you're August Derleth, who, as an exercise, is trying to recreate all of the things that he likes about Lovecraft, although even he sort of, you know, fails at that goal insofar as he's putting his own worldview on top of Lovecraft's worldview. Um, so a lot of beginning writing very transparently just sort of stops at the point of let's play with these genre tropes and the person's own identity is not there on the page yet. The w- ways that you can practically make that happen are, first of all, if you are in the grip of influence of one particular writer who you uh, like a little bit too much, Uh, Hunter S. Thompson is another example of someone who, even if you don't love Thompson, if you read one of his things, you know, you have to spend a couple of days getting that voice out of your system. And it's happened to all the actors who've played him over the years, too. Uh, And uh, Johnny Depp went back and did it twice, even. You never go full Thompson. Yes. So uh, one way to do that is to make sure that you have more than one influence. Yeah. And to have very disparate, unexpected influences. And that is all about... You should know things in your life, but you should also know things in all sorts of different areas of fiction and not necessarily just the expected ones. And you can really tell when you read, you know, a piece of giant robot fiction written by someone who is only engaged by giant robots and someone who has a broader awareness of different forms of storytelling. And perhaps those people find it easier to put their life in it. And it's if you are the product of a unexpected mix of influences, you're already 75% of the way there to having an individual voice because no one's going to combine, you know, Jim Thompson and Jack Vance and Raymond Carver, except you. Um, (laughs) Well, not me, but someone. Except one. (laughs) And then, you know, you may have created a unique constellation of other people's artistic work that you want to engage with, but you still have to 
put yourself in it. And so uh, writing what you know, I think of as a shorthand for knowing why you are engaged with what it is that you're writing. And so when you're working on something that seems flat and, and isn't quite coming up and you stop and ask yourself, I'm obviously fascinated enough by this to spend a lot of time working on it. But what is the root of my fascination? You know, if I want to write the ultimate giant robot story, what is it that makes me care about giant robots? Uh, how am I going to make something then that other people, even only other people who care about giant robots, I still need something to differentiate my giant robot masterpiece from everybody else's. So what is it that I really care about? Why have I spent all of this time thinking about giant robots and consuming giant robot anime and movies and comics and so forth? What does this really mean in my life? What does it represent? Uh, because I think more and more, as genre takes over, we are going back to a sort of a mythic form of storytelling where the people's inner dramas are being expressed with all of these genre tropes, some of them on the surface kind of silly, uh, but it's the connection between the inner drama and the inner life and one's feelings and persona and these tropes, not just coming up with a technically kind of novel rearrangement of tropes that is really going to stand your writing in great stead. I, I think that when you when you talk about sort of expressing your inner drama in these mythic or genre driven forms, uh, you're sort of getting at you know I I would say maybe the inside half of write what you know because the other half of write what you know has to be the the, the tropes right it has to be the the giant robots and if you come to giant robot uh, drama from the outside and you say well everyone else seems to like giant robots maybe I should write a giant robot story and you don't know the giant robots and you don't and you haven't you know been a part of the Gundam scene from way back and you and you don't know the difference between a Gundam and a robot for example you will wind up coming a cropper for a different reason because you will t be telling a story that feels wrong to its intended audience and maybe they don't even know why it feels wrong if you're a a particularly good uh, craftsman, and maybe what you've created is something ideally that feels interesting to that audience. But the danger is that because you are doing the tropes in a, a way that uh, best practice has argued not to do, the, the the giant robot equivalent of "and it was all a dream," or uh, the two astronauts turn to each other and introduce themselves as Adam and Eve, or whatever the giant robot version of that is, you will wind up failing on the mythic level, even if your personal story is really uh, is really working for you. And I guess that's the other half of write what you know, is know the thing that you are trying to express your emotional drama through. I mean, Lovecraft, for example, to go back to him, knew architecture, and he knew the landscape of New England, and that was his advice to Derleth, and Derleth's then advice to Ramsey Campbell is, don't write what I know, don't write about New England, Write about, you know, Derleth, write about Wisconsin. That's what you know. That's what you love. That's part of you. That's how you can express cosmic horror. And then uh, Derleth turns around and tells Ramsey Campbell, don't write about New England. Write about Old England. You live in Liverpool. Surely there's something awful about that. And Campbell was <laughs> off to the races. You live in the north. Um, <laughs> yes, where they do what they like. Right. I, I would actually zoom out from uh, your thesis there and just say that any impulse to write something that 
starts with, well, I don't really know much about this, but other people seem to like it. Stop. <laughs> yeah. Stop right there. Don't mm-hmm. go and learn more about robots in order to tell a more educated robot story. Stop and, and think, uh, you are ultimately writing for an audience, but your writing is never going to be successful and interesting if it's not something that you passionately care about. And all of the intellectual understanding of what appeals to people about certain tropes or genres will avail you nothing if you don't care about it yourself. If you are not working on something that you yourself would read, don't do it. Your, your life is too short, and you will also have no way of determining whether it's any good or not. But you certainly do make a point about the um, externals, that you have to know the externals of what it is that you're doing. And research is knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, the maxim is not, you know, personally experience things and then write about them. It's write about what you know, so that if you are writing a story with an 18th century uh, nautical theme to it, research enough about it to at least give the impression that there is a reality there in the story that you, the writer, are familiar with enough to convey a sense of authenticity. Now, you don't want to let the research take over the story, but that's maybe a segment for another day, uh, which again suggests that we are uh, out of segment. Once again, time to ask Ken and Robin, and in this case, Eric Otterberg asks, what if Lovecraft had not died in 1937? Um, If Lovecraft had lived to the same age as, say, Ray Bradbury or Frederick Paul, he would have uh, died perhaps in 1981. So, uh, Ken, what do you envision in this alternate reality where the uh, sort of poor health care that uh, led to Lovecraft's death did not occur, and he lived into a uh, long, if not happy, dotage. Well, I mean, th- there's a number of different directions you can go with it. In uh, my own sort of <laughs> work of absolute nerdery, talk about writing what you know, um, Adventures in the Darkness, in which I sort of tweak a couple of things to give Lovecraft a second career as a comics uh, writer, and then move him on into Hollywood, uh, to get him out of comics, I posit that the he, he dies really at the exactly wrong time, and that if he just hung on a little longer, uh, it would have been possible, as indeed it proved possible, to sell his work into the burgeoning paperback movement. Remember that the paperback revolution begins, depending on when you date it exactly, but Penguin, for example, publishes its first paperback book in 1936. So we see the paperback revolution, which is the really the ideal mode of, trans, of, of transmission for Lovecraft's fiction, blows up right after he dies. And sure enough, in the 40s, uh, very soon after his death, he, uh, I believe um, Avon publishes a couple of Lovecraft uh, volumes in paperback. We, uh, obviously, it's in uh, books for the Armed Forces, Armed Forces editions of various Lovecraft works go out to Europe where they uh, fall on fertile ground. 
And so I think that if you just assume that someone besides Lovecraft is in charge of selling his work, you have a possibility of sort of moving his career up to it, if not a, um, uh, a, a literary lion stage, at least a somewhat self-sustaining stage in which he can write for paperback originals, he can write for, uh, you know, new science fiction magazines that are beginning to come up. He can write for uh, markets that really didn't exist. He's, he's dying as, um, uh, as, as the pulps are, are, are falling off. And of course, even, you know, to whatever extent his death, amp- uh, amplified it when, uh, Farnsworth Wright left, uh, Weird Tales and, and Wright had a great admiration for Lovecraft as a writer. He just didn't think that his stuff moved magazines. But when Dorothy, uh, McElroy took over, she had the opposite impression and published as much Lovecraft as she could get her hands on. And where Wright was unwilling to cut pieces into serial form, he, he preferred the, the unity of effect. McElwraith would, would cut stuff up if it need, if she needed to, to make it fit into the, into the schedule of the magazine. And if Wright leaves Weird Tales and McElwraith comes on, he will have a second period during which she will be accepting as much of his fiction as he wants to write for her. So he'll have that is a possibility. And you can, of course, have sort of the superfan version in which uh, uh, Val Luton reads uh, the, the case of Charles Dexter Ward in, its, uh, in, in, a, in a novel form, in which it was not published in uh, independently until, I think, the 70s or 80s, and, you know, says, oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And you see Lovecraft become one of the things that is adapted into movies a lot, as opposed to almost never. Um, or you can go a more sort of conventional writer version in which every now and again something sells to Hollywood, but it doesn't become a big deal. But so maybe you're envisioning him sort of at the level of a, you know, a Frederick Paul or a Fritz Leiber rather than a Ray Bradbury who crosses over. Right. And, and, but, but again, uh, his buddy, Robert Block, once he sells Psycho, if Lovecraft is still alive, there's no force on earth that is going to prevent Robert Block from saying, if you want my next novel, you have to buy Lovecraft's next novel, right? Because Block, of course, had a huge admiration for Lovecraft, and it would have killed him to get Psycho, you know, into, uh, in, into a movie form if he was sitting there looking at Case of Charles Dexter Ward or Mountains of Madness or something and saying, why isn't this a movie? And, and as Lovecraft's, uh, you know, uh, other sort of uh, progeny be- become more and more influential, people like James Blish... Uh, people like um, uh, Fritz Leiber to an extent, although he never really is an influential uh, in sort of the, the means of production side of things. But even Julius Schwartz, once he takes over DC Comics, he might very well have offered Lovecraft a few gigs, or at least uh, offered him uh, adaptation rights uh, to, 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 to the work. And that would have also continued to push his his fiction out into the into the world earlier than it did. I mean, you'd see the Lovecraft boom, and I don't know if absent... Um, <laughs> absent 30 more years of, pro- of prosperity giving, giving rise to that much larger and fatter a leisure class, you see the same boom that you got of Lovecraft finally in the 80s. But I think you definitely see some increase in Lovecraft interest in, you know, the, the 40s and 50s. And then even in our history, there is a Lovecraft mini-boom in the late 60s and early 70s that is, for example, exemplified by the forgettable prog rock band the H.P. Lovecraft and by the uh, finally, the green lighting of the Dunwich Horror as a film, even if it's for AIP. So, is there a darker timeline though, where uh, Love, because Lovecraft is not dead, uh, uh, August Durleth does not feel the messianic need to 
create a press to keep his works in print, uh, and therefore you do not get the coalescing of the weird tale genre around uh, Arkham House. Um, and uh, you also get a Lovecraft whose social views <laughs> seem somewhat forgivable as someone who uh, died in, in the 30s and had time to admire Mussolini without seeing how that storyline wrapped up. But if you have uh, an unreconstructed Lovecraft uh, going through the 60s and 70s, there is certainly uh, the prospect of someone who, uh, if he's unable to you know, sort of grow and flex and roll with the times, who is going to do a lot to sort of blot his copybook, as it were. So if, if the notion is that Lovecraft's response to the Holocaust and the civil rights movement is to uh, abandon fiction for a series of uh, John Birch or, uh, or given his final political alliance, Communist Party, uh, polemics about the necessity to uh, build the technocratic state on the, on the bones of uh, ethnic minorities. Yeah, I mean, that Lovecraft then becomes kind of an interesting figure in the same sort of way, I guess, that L. Ron Hubbard does, in which his early fiction, whether it was good or not, is pretty much forgotten as a result of the uh, social controversy that his later work kicks up. Um, Lovecraft as polemicist could certainly have been interesting, but I think that the market for his polemics was, even when he was alive, smaller than the market for his fiction. Well, I'm just more thinking of the guy who you stop inviting to your convention because yeah. uh, he uh, you know, gets up to do the keynote speech and, uh, and begins his reference the to the swarthy uh, races <laughs> yeah. uh, starts to uh, upset people. And uh, you know, once uh, the student movement arises in the uh, 60s and genre fiction sort of has that uh, turn toward the uh, emotional and progressive uh, side, he could uh, uh, create a lot of trouble for himself. But I guess that's um, perhaps a more interesting question is how uh, do you think the events and outcome of uh, World War II might have uh, changed the work of a, a still living Lovecraft? Well, I mean, I, I think that his experience of World War One was of was was a patriotic one. He and he identified himself as an Englishman, and I think that Lovecraft would have listened to Churchill the same way that you know lots of Americans, especially on the political right, listen to Churchill as a voice defending Western civilization against not just uh you know uh, Bolshevism, but also against Hitler, and sort of connecting those two things in their mind in a way that uh, maybe um, Dorothy Day was not able to do, and so. I think Lovecraft would have, and also the huge number of letters that would have come in from you know soldiers overseas writing and saying, "I'm reading your book, and I'm on Guadalcanal, and your and, and your your uh, your your horrific uh, monstrous apocalypse is is keeping me happily distracted from the war that I'm fighting," and and I think that he would have uh, responded with a swell of patriotism just as he did in World War One. Now, whether or not he would have connected that with the larger goal of defeating, um, uh, you know organized race murder that might or might not have caused him to reevaluate. Uh, we certainly would like to believe that Lovecraft is as capable as most American racists were of looking at the death camps and saying, well, I'm not going to talk about race anymore, regardless of what my opinions are. Right. I'm going to wait a few decades <laughs> and then say nothing happened. And then say nothing happened. And I doubt that Lovecraft would have convinced himself that nothing happened. I mean, he was still 
you know, at the bottom line, an empiricist, and as empirical reality changed, maybe he would have even read Franz Boas and started believing different things about anthropology. I mean, certainly the the whole field of anthropology did uh, sort of begin to redo those skull measurement experiments and and look at um, uh, the the much greater role that environment played over her, over heredity, and maybe Lovecraft would have. Uh, you know, followed that anth- uh, that scientific research. It's also quite possible that, like a lot of people, he would have stopped at the point when scientific consensus agreed with his own ideology and never moved past it. And so he would still have been writing angry letters back and forth to uh, an increasingly small network of of uh, sympathetic correspondence. Because again, Lovecraft in his personal behavior was certainly more genteel than his letters give you the impression of. And his many Jewish friends uh, were not subject to anti-Semitic rants in their person. And certainly at a science fiction convention, if Lovecraft is a keynoter in the 50s and 60s, he's going to notice that there's an awful lot of Jews in the audience and probably have toned that element of his planned remarks down. But, uh, but, But I think that, you know, the there would have been sort of the, the lingering time bomb in his writing that, say, went off under T.S. Eliot or went off under H.L. Mencken, and that we'd look back and we say, oh, no, is does that mean we have to like not like the wasteland no, now, or does that mean we, we can't enjoy uh, Mencken's uh, vitriol when it is aimed at targets we still, appro- we still approve of vitrioling? And I think that there's a lot of sort of questions that are still being asked once someone has gotten into the sort of intellectual canon and the question is, does Lovecraft make his way into the intellectual canon on the basis of his own, you know, powers as a critic? I mean, that's another thing. There's more and more audiences for what, uh, you know, they call middle-brow criticism. You know, supernatural horror and literature might have made a fine think piece for The Atlantic. If you stripped out all the crazy racism. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's what editors are for, right? <laughs> that's what editors are for. And in terms of the content of the work itself, do you apprehend some sort of... Uh, movement in his work toward a direction that uh, would have gone in some sort of different direction uh, as he went through the uh, 40s and 50s and and 60s? I don't know enough about it because my, I mean, my impression is, and I think this is a fairly common one, that Lovecraft begins with a certain number of themes and tropes and stories that he wants to write, and he keeps writing them over and over and over until they become masterpieces. And so, for example, when you look at Dagon, you can sort of see the egg that Call of Cthulhu is going to hatch out of. Or when you look at uh, the tomb, you can sort of see the egg that Shadow Out of Time is going to hatch out of. And when you look at From Beyond, you can see what becomes Dreams in the Witch House, but I think maybe there's another masterpiece past that one. But I don't know where you go from... Dagon, once you've written Call of Cthulhu, right? Or once you've written At the Mountains of Madness, which is sort of the same sort of thing. And at some point, he either is going to wind up, I think, having to write actual interplanetary fiction, uh, in, in which his canvas can expand outward to, to Mars or to the, or to the stars, or he's going to start, you know, mining out another trope of the Gothic, and maybe he starts you know, he, he writes a, a haunted house novel or, in, or he uh, runs across um, the works of uh, Olaf Stapledon and that inspire him to, to write more um, sort of fu- far-flung future cosmic history type horror. I think that the, the other thing that's really going to be interesting in terms of uh, Lovecraft is if he runs into quantum theory and starts reading the debates between, you know, Einstein and uh, and Bohr, basically, 
uh, even if they're middle browed down in popular science magazines, what is that going to do to his conception of, of of the cosmic? How is that going to change his vocabulary? He he, he wanted to write um, one last great haunted house book uh, called The House of the Worm. He never did. He he had a, a couple of sorts of you know notions uh, in his head, but the he was his energy was so sapped by the constant rejections that he was getting in the in the early thirties that he that he didn't really bother to do it. And I think that if you recreate a time in which people are interested in buying whatever he's writing, even if it's on a fairly, you know, mediocre level uh, of, of success, it's still going to be, it, it's still going to look great to Lovecraft that I think that maybe he sort of has a second wind in the way that maybe uh, Heinlein does after he sort of finishes out the, the, the future history and the juveniles and then has to sort of start adding, you know, Lovecraft is, I don't think, ever going to add sex into the, into the, into the mix the way that Heinlein does. But you see a lot of these authors, like Bradbury sort of stops um, his small-town elegies and moves on into, um, uh, in, 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 you know, geographically and, and, and in space. And I think that there's a lot of these guys that, that get sort of second careers or at least try you know, standard science fiction for a while and go, and then go back to, to fantasy the way that Liber did. Although I guess the, the one ultimate terror in this timeline is that uh, Lovecraft might uh, take the necessary steps to secure his intellectual property. Yeah. Uh, therefore, not making it the basis for uh, everybody's uh, free play. And that uh, also could uh, sort of retard the uh, growth of it as a, uh, as a mythos. It could wind up being like, you know, Fafford and the Grey Mouser, uh, something that is out there and people like, but is not as widely a part of the genre conversation just because uh, legally uh, you have to file the serial numbers off it before you can play with it. Well, even, even when he was alive, he was encouraging people to do it, and the reason that it sort of stopped being done in a lot of cases was because his correspondence, um, and obviously Howard was dead, but you know, Clark Ashton Smith start, stopped writing after Lovecraft died because it wasn't any fun anymore. And if Lovecraft is still alive, and then encouraging that next, you know, generation, encouraging Liber to go ahead, use Cthulhu in Fafford and the Grey Mouser, that'd be, that'd be hilarious. That'd be awesome. Or he's encouraging, you know, I don't, I don't know who, uh, you know, Robert Block to um, uh, put uh, the Necronomicon in Norman Bates's attic, that that might be, you know, it, it, instead, it, it, we might be so drenched in Cthulhu that it it's it, that that it, be, it becomes even more omnipresent than it is now because it, it's such a a common thread and maybe there's there's great fan fights over who got permission from Lovecraft to use it or didn't use it and that's what they're always asking him when he uh, is grandmaster at at some science fiction convention is is it true that Isaac Asimov used Neolithic without asking your permission or whatever? Um, well, uh, that's the thing with alternate histories. There are so many uh, counterfactuals you can keep going all day, but I believe we have. Yet another segment waiting in the wings. The smell of maple syrup and crack tell us that we are... (laughs) (laughs) We are overdue for a delicious, delightful... Uh, progress from the great whale hunt that is Robin Laws's quest to bring down his nemesis, Rob Ford. And Rob Ford, for those who have uh, <laughs> cleverly fast-forwarded through this segment the last t- times we've done it, is uh, the 
beloved and buffoonish mayor of Toronto, the fair flower of, of the Canadian uh, uh, urban scene. And Robin, uh, one assumes that he did not uh, simply straighten up, fly right, and devote himself to sewer improvement, that in- indeed there is more to this story as he continues to um, uh, to dance his way false staff-like through sequel after sequel. Right. So if we recall from our previous exciting episodes about uh, the Rob Ford story, first one was about him getting uh, turfed out of office over a $1,500 campaign irregularity and then uh, getting unturfed. Um, and the uh, previous one after that is the story of the crack video that a number of reporters have seen and that we uh, have a, a still from, but which Rob Ford continues to say that he has not seen and it may not exist. <laughs> so the, the last time we spoke, there was a sense of an impending bubble about to burst and something going to happen. And then it, it didn't. And then we've had a slow... <laughs> trickle of stories that continue to paint this story of uh, Ford's uh, extremely colorful extracurricular life. And uh, so we've had a number of uh, mini scandals. And now increasingly, and this is why I've responded once again to uh, unexpected popular demand to talk about this yet again, (laughs) uh, there does seem to be uh, an indication of, of movement in the story. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've I've seen that one before. It's like, come on, how much how much longer can he hunt this whale, Melville? Yes, <laughs> we're we're at page three hundred. It's got to be done now. And and if we were depending on Robin to knock off Rob Ford, uh, metaphorically, of course, uh, that's not going to happen. But there may be uh, others on his trail now. So uh, since we last spoke, uh, we had a couple of scandals involving his right-hand man of inexplicable credentials, a guy named uh, David Price, who uh, was briefly suspended when it was discovered that he was sock puppeting local uh, call-in shows, pretending to be uh, just a regular guy named Dave, who happened (laughs) to really, really love Rob Ford. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Okay, so we have... His campaign aides calling into radio shows. Uh, Pretending to be regular Dave. As Phil's. Being not regular Dave's. Of incidents in which he was uh, wildly abusive to uh, commuter train employees and uh, smashed a door. This is David Price, not Rob Ford smashing doors. This is David Price again. It uh, turned out that the door in question was not owned by uh, Go Transit. Uh, but was owned by uh, Via Rail, uh, a different uh, government uh, <laughs> transit, and Via Rail is mysteriously uninterested in. Now, Robin, obviously, we don't we don't have any we don't have any real time for this. But if you could give us a ten minute breakdown on the transit system and its uh, administrative infrastructure of the city of Toronto, I'm sure our viewers would be happy to go listen to another podcast. Yes, well, transit is key to the Rob Ford story, but uh, so so that's his one aid. Next, we come uh, in the timeline to June 13th, and this is when Toronto police uh, rolled out a huge anti-drug gang sweep called Project Traveler. Right. And As opposed uh, to Project Traveler, the new era, which is um, uh, just in a, one tiny part of the neighborhood. Yes. Um, and uh, Traveler, for those of you who are uh, role-playing fans, you will be happy to know that it is spelled with two L's. So mm-hmm. there you go. And uh, it turned out that a large number of the people who were uh, swept up in this drug sweep had a relationship to the particular gang that uh, operates in Etobicoke, which is the uh, Toronto... 
uh, suburb from which Rob Ford hails. And a couple of weeks later, it turned out that the uh, person who uh, shot the Rob Ford video was, in fact, one of the people arrested under that suite. Right. Now, I mean... Before we, we go further down this particular road, there there was going to be a crowdfunding to bribe the drug dealer to give the video up. Now, did that ever get a video, or have we it, still... It did not secure a video. So, so when you uh, say that the guy who made the video was arrested, you mean the guy who people think made the video because we don't have a video yet, right? If that is the level of evidence that you require in order to characterize him as that, uh, that's how you would characterize him. Right, okay. Um, but um, there are... Uh, uh, two reputable Toronto Star reporters and the guy from Gawker, all of whom describe seen having it. seen the video. Right. Uh, two different uh, instances. Uh, their accounts uh, match one another. And there are all sorts of other people who are on the record as uh, suggesting that uh, this guy tried to sell something to Gawker before uh, being... Uh, strongly discouraged from it by uh, elders of the Somali community because, of course, this was putting uh, huge uh, pressure on a, a particular uh, community in Toronto, and they did not particularly care for the sort of attention that they were getting. Such and as so, drug gang sweeps. Yes. Um, and so uh, the so far unconfirmed implication is that prosecutors have the recording. Right. Uh, but no one has quite been able to come out and nail that down in an actual sourced uh, newspaper report. Okay. Uh, and, of course, if one was a prosecutor uh, supervising a couple of uh, major drug investigations in which this featured as a piece of evidence, the responsible thing to do would be to do exactly what they've done, which is sort of kind of let the word get out that the tape may be less alleged than some people want it to be. Right. So that takes us to August 2nd. A week later, we get the famous event at the Taste of the Danforth Street Fair, uh, where Rob Ford, who has previously denied having a substance abuse problem to the point where his uh, brother and uh, counselor and uh, uh, partner in uh, all things political, Doug Ford, uh, his line uh, was that he had never seen his brother take a drink. <laughs> Now, that, that's just ridiculous on the face of it. I mean, no one who looks like Rob Ford has never drunk. That's just the way the universe works. Right. Um, and You're uh, like saying he wasn't jolly. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not sure how jolly he is. Well, I think uh, he's, he's jolly when things are going his way. Um, you know, he's a tormented guy. Uh, oh. You don't see a lot of pictures of him happy and, and smiling. I mean, if, 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 for, for goodness sake, there's pictures of Newt Gingrich being jolly. And if he can fake jolly, anyone can fake jolly. You would think that would be... Does Jolly not sell in Canada? Do people... Are they suspicious of the Jolly? I think we would much rather have him be Jolly. But uh, even when he's uh, interacting with his people, there's a... This is not a man who is uh, comfortable in his skin. <laughs> well, I mean, how much more room does he need? <laughs> <laughs> well, people will note that I'm I'm letting Ken take the easy, low-hanging fat jokes here. I, I just feel there's so much more to go after. Right, than okay, his, all right, fine. Problems. So, at the street fair, he no doubt... Um, he shows uh, up, blitzed to the gills, clearly uh, completely intoxicated, uh, in at a public event. The previous events that he'd shown up were, you know, private events and so forth. But he's uh, clearly completely wasted in an era where everybody has a high-definition camera in their phone. Mm -hmm. And so there are a number of videos that you can go to. Uh, if you type in uh, Taste of the Danforth and Rob Ford, uh, they will show up on 
YouTube and that uh, somewhat kiboshed, shall we say, the Doug Ford line that he had never seen his brother take a drink. And so immediately after on the uh, radio show that the two of them host on Sundays on a local talk radio show, they then uh, did a, a volt face. And uh, now the line is, of course, he has a beer every now and again. He's just a regular guy. Yeah, I'm surprised that wasn't the line to begin with. I mean, this is that the thing, would have been the smarter play, wouldn't the, it? <laughs> this is the thing that always messes me with with our, our buddy Rob is that, given his natural constituency, right, of of sort of blokey guys from you know the, the 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 Tim Hortons versus the Starbucks, right, the blokey normal Canadian who doesn't like your big city tomfoolery. That's like the easiest playbook in the world for an American politician. I mean, you have to be John Kerry not to be able to carry that off. Why is it so hard for him to pretend to be that guy then if he can't fake jolly? He can't say, yeah, I have a couple of drinks now and again because I'm a decent Canadian guy who likes to have a couple of drinks now and again. Why Why this sort of weird insistence on pretending that, I mean, that he's not part of that natural constituency, which There's is, after all... a psychological concept, which is an advanced one, so I'm sure you haven't heard of it. It's called denial. Denial, okay. <laughs> and, so he's, he's uh, trying to deny that he's a suburban goof? I thought that was the whole point of him running. I, he's denying to himself yeah. that he has a substance abuse problem. Okay, right. Um, and so if you are uh, denying that you are an addict, you overcompensate uh, by having your brother claim that you're a teetotaler. Uh, <laughs> However absurd and difficult to defend that may be when you go out in public slosh to the gills. Again, in America, we just say, I'm a social drinker. That's how we deny that we're an alcoholic. That's the safest uh, thing to do. Or, you know, now afterwards, you have to modify it to, I may go to a street fair uh, drooling drunker. What's more social than a street fair? So anyway, <laughs> he, he, he's, he's drunk as a skunk. Um, and then he, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the radio show, they say... What that he's 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 uh, an alcoholic in pain seeking treatment in the Oprah's or what's the story there? Oh no no he is still not said the a word. Okay. This whole thing is I think that he is staying in office in order to not go into rehab, not that he's not going on into rehab in order to stay in office. Okay all right. Um, so August sixteenth, there is uh, an assault committed on someone who does not who is not the owner of, of the video, who is at this point in prison, but someone who is... So there's uh, probably an assault on him. It just didn't make the papers. Right. But uh, at this point, it turns out that... I think this is an allegation surfacing of an earlier incident where uh, someone went to the house of a guy who uh, knew Rob Ford and knew the uh, guy who made the video and insisted over a period of time that he lure the video haver to his location so that the video could be removed from his possession. Right. And the person who was being prevailed upon to uh, draw in this guy was unable to do so and got beaten uh, with a lead pipe for his trouble. Mm. So we're now in the realm of, you know, actual aggravated assault. Mm. And, and, the, and the notion that it had something to do with the video, is that also an allegation or is that Pretty much everyone has agreed that that was true, and we just don't know. Certainly the guy who got hit with the lead pipe has, has told that story. As opposed to this has to do with us disagreeing over how much meth we were going to sell. Right. Okay. So flash forward to October 2nd, and another 40 to syncrasy is that he refuses to use a city-provided driver. Now, this has always been pitched as part of his uh, penny-pinching, save-money-for-the-taxpayers' ways. Right. Uh, but... It turns out that uh, when he is not uh, driving and reading or driving and texting by himself, he does have 
an informal guy in his circle who drives him around to things. Um, and his name is Sandro Lisi. Uh, Sandro Lisi has been uh, convicted of threatening to kill his girlfriend. Uh, and in that court procedure received a glowing letter of recommendation from Rob Ford during his sentencing <laughs> process. But it turns out this is the guy who is Rob Ford's occasional volunteered, not city paid driver. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is on October 2nd, uh, arrested on a series of drug trafficking charges, marijuana trafficking in, in particular. Um, and it turns out that uh, he is uh, being looked at as the wielder of the lead pipe. Aha! So we're now having a, a picture of a whole group of people, around, and there are other alleged accomplices of uh, Sandra Lisi's are, are arrested. Uh, one, uh, a dry cleaner who is either a poor guy who Sandra Lisi likes to smoke pot with in the back of his dry cleaning shop, although I would not recommend his dry cleaning shop to me, or <laughs> is in fact part of his drug trafficking operation. Now, now is this is this as a result of leads turned up by the Project Traveler sweep, or is this just as a result of some you know normal sort of day-to-day -day Toronto policing? I mean, to what extent is this you know uncovering of the Sandra Lisi ring? It's very much part of this investigation, and it's uh, there is now a spin-off investigation from Traveler. But it's looking as if it is a, also a possibility that Traveler was uh, set up in response to the Merrill scandals. So we don't totally have a chronology on that yet, but we do know that there's now a police unit headed by Detective Sergeant uh, Gary Giroux, who is your <laughs> go-to uh, guy. If you're now, he's to... a guy. Now, now, if you tell me he doesn't play up the fact that he's named Detective Sergeant Gary Giroux and is a Canadian cop, I, I will lose all respect for Toronto media. The, this he has to be, you know, wearing a trench coat and staring gruffly into the middle distance and have clear blue eyes like an icy lake. Um, he is a. If there was a, if you were to make a TV series about a hard charging uh, Toronto cop, you would make it about uh, Detective Sergeant Gary Giroux. Okay. He's, a, he's a homicide cop, but when there's other investigation that needs doing, he gets pulled off homicides to do that as well, such as his reputation. And so he uh, took part in the investigation into uh, uh, police activities during the G20, and he's now in charge of this new unit that is investigating uh, Rob Ford. And so uh, it turns out uh, that the Lisi arrest, however, was triggered by another incident of heretofore little known in which Rob Ford lost his Blackberry. Okay. <laughs> and Sandra Lisi uh, went to the person who he thought had Rob Ford's Blackberry and indeed effectuated a swap of the Blackberry for a quantity of marijuana. Uh, this, uh, I, you know, the, 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 it, it's just... A lot of, I mean, I'm not naive. I'm sure that many, many politicians in America have uh, connections with drug traffickers. That's been true, you know, back when alcohol was illegal to traffic. And I'm sure it's true now. It's just that it's, is it, is, is it as piquant a contrast in Canada that uh, Mr. Uh, fat white suburb law and order guy is in bed with um, a dry cleaning pot operation and Somali crack dealers or is that just something that everyone's in bed with something like that and this just happens to be his deal is there this is, this is strongly non-anglo canadian politics right okay that that's what i that's what's because it, it's it's like you know if um uh if you found out that that say you know um 
I don't know, let, let's stick to picking on Newt Gingrich. If you found out that he was in league with, like, an Oxycontin smuggling ring, you'd say, well, I, I, I can sort of see that that would make sense. But if he was in league with ecstasy dealers, you'd say, that seems un-Newt Gingrich-y to me, right? Well, it, even in the annals of uh, politicians being mixed up in... Uh, with drug criminals, this is kind of a uh, retail level. Yeah. Right. right? It's uh, you know, it's, uh, he knows a, a bunch of uh, dealers and uh, it doesn't seem to be in, you know, in the area of a vast conspiracy. It's just mm -hmm. when someone needs to be roughed up, there's a guy he knows, he knows, well, there isn't a guy who knows a guy. There's a guy. <laughs> there's a guy. There's <laughs> his actually, driver. his driver goes and roughs someone up. It's, it, well, I guess it's part of his cutting out needless bureaucracy and middle management. Right. Um, and also, for example, in the blending of official and non-official and quasi-official roles, on October 9th, it was revealed that, uh, as listeners may recall, uh, the one thing that possibly makes Rob Ford jolly uh, was the uh, high school football team that he uh, coached. And was although, banned from coaching ever, I remember. And was banned previously. from coaching ever and <sighs> refers to on the uh, crack video as just a bunch of minorities and on a previous event... Uh, indicated that they might all be in jail or dead if it weren't for his uh, intervention, uh, hence the booting for life by the Catholics rule board. Um, turns out, though, that uh, a guy he brought on board to be his assistant while catch coaching high school football players was a guy named uh, uh, Peter uh, Payman, a.k.a. Payman Adula, uh, and he turns out to be uh, apparently a drug enforcer for Sandra Lisi. And they obscured the details of his past criminal record in order to get him onto school property as a volunteer assistant football coach. As 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 I suppose you would have to, even even in Canada, you right. would probably consider that uh, beyond the pale. Wow. So, so that's sort of the the picture of the uh, you know. So it doesn't. It's not looking like a grand conspiracy where he's uh, done anything to help out top-level drug dealers. It just turns out that, it that a lot of his buddies are drug dealers. A lot of his buddies are drug dealers, and uh, uh, we have reasons to believe that uh, his choice of intoxicants uh, expands beyond alcohol because now he actually admits that he was asked uh, in after the Danforth incident, well, have you ever smoked pot? And indeed, he's now taking your advice, Ken, you'll be happy to hear, because mm -hmm. now his answer was, oh, yeah, I've smoked a lot of it. <laughs> Well, see now if he, uh, you know, I just, I just feel like there was he, there was a grand coalition that he just missed uh, having there between um, uh, pot smoking liberals and uh, Tim Hortons conservatives. He could have produced a an addled dynasty that would have ruled Toronto forever. So apparently, among the uh, items at the disposal of uh, Detective Sergeant Gary Giroux is a Cessna that has been hired specifically to conduct surveillance of the mayor. Um, and this is a light plane. This is a light plane. That is surveilling the mayor. Right. On the grounds that he can't look up because his chin won't let him. Uh, uh, and, uh, well, Doug Ford was complaining for a while that the police were chasing uh, his brother in a uh, Cessna. And sure uh, enough, they were. Well, and then he, he actually backed off the claim and said, well, no, it must be those rats in the media. Uh, because, of course, it turns out that if you're a sitting politician and your brother is a sitting politician, it's not does not work in your favor to complain that the police are surveilling you in an aerial vehicle. Although so, again, I'll bet I'll you know it would work for Rand Paul. He could do it. Uh, yeah, and I know what aerial vehicle he would pick and what color it would be. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but in this case, so uh, as we close uh, this latest installment of the Rob Ford story, you can just imagine him 
in the last act of Goodfellas, and we're hearing a lot of uh, Harry Nilsson on the soundtrack as the aerial surveillance of Toronto's beloved mayor continues. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this golem off free going by clicking the donate button at canonrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>